Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah, um, what's good here? Literally everything. Oh, geez, that's rough. Um, okay, I think I'm gonna get a pint-sized burger because I'm hungry, but I'm not that hungry. Perfect. And I really just want cheese and pickles. Perfect. You know, I think I really want like a burger that has peanut butter, weird pickles, oh, bacon, and a bun. Um, we have that, and it will come with crispy fries. Holy sh! Oh, look, it's right here. Peanut butter pickle bacon. Oh, my God. And what a price. What a savings. Kill Kill a burger. burger. (laughs) Enjoy big, juicy, over-the-top delicious burgers, each one topped with bacon and served with a pile of crispy fries. Every killer burger is designed to bring out the best in a tall, cold, local craft beer. Set yourself up with what's coming off the griddle and out of the taps. They also have a delicious veggie patty for folks like myself that aren't into the meat scene. Visit KillerBurger.com for more information or visit one of their locations in Oregon, Washington, and Arizona. And be sure to follow Killer Burger on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The following episode contains descriptions of abuse, sexual assault, and homicidal violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is a real, you know, nice community and, you know, stuff, bad stuff it just never happens out here. It just doesn't. Some of us actually did search that area because it's a little abandoned road um, and nobody seen anything. So, you know, if, if something wants to be hidden, it can be hidden very well. There are nearly 20,000 murders annually in the United States. Perhaps it's the weather, but the Pacific Northwest has become the notorious home of serial killers and bizarre crimes. We're here to discuss those murders, to try to understand the motives, respect and remember the victims, and explore the humanity of it all. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. And And this this is Murder in in the Rain. Rain. Hi, guys. Uh, Today's case is something that personally impacted me uh, while I was in college. So we all have these cases that we kind of take on and think about regularly throughout life. And this is one that uh, definitely spoke to me. And I think possibly because we were similar in age and that I lived in the same town that this happened in, uh, maybe why. But today we're going to talk about Brooke Carol Wilberger. Brooke Wilberger was a vibrant 19-year-old I would describe her, you know, not from knowing her, but seeing pictures as someone whose smile would light up a room. She's the epitome of a beauty, bubbly, blonde, blue-eyed, definitely full of personality and potential. Friends described her as athletic, caring, but tough, and also a very great friend. Though she was born in Fresno, California in 1985, the Wilberger family actually lived just outside Eugene, Oregon, in this small town called Venita. Brooke came from a large Mormon family, although by Mormon standards, I guess it's probably not that large. It was just Brooke, her mom, dad, three sisters, and two brothers. Oh, yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah, reasonable amount. You know, they were halfway there almost, you know. (laughs) 
The family, including Brooke, has been described as just devout members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. And oftentimes in the clips and the articles, you'll see that they were really well known in the Corvallis area, even though they were from Eugene. At age 16, Brooke, like many Mormon girls, began to date, and she turned a childhood friendship with Justin Blake into something more. In coming years, Justin left to attend Brigham Young University. No surprise there. Classic. (laughs) And soon thereafter, went to a LDS mission in South America. Just like Justin, Brooke decided to also go to Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. After successfully completing her freshman year, Rather than moving home for the summer, she joined her sister in Corvallis, Oregon, to work at the apartment complex her big sister Stephanie managed. Uh, These were the Oak Park Apartments just off of the Oregon State University campus. The morning of Monday, May 24th, 2004, between around 9 and 10 a.m., Brooke left her sister's apartment with a bucket of water and cleaning supplies. Uh, She was intending to go outside and clean the lamp posts around the parking lot of the apartments. Her sister noted that she was wearing jeans, a BYU sweatshirt, and hoop earrings and flip-flops. And her goal for the day, like I said, was to clean the lampposts. This involved the bulb covers of each of them. Her sister during this time decided to take her child to daycare and was only gone a few minutes and returned around 1030. And she didn't see Brooke, but she didn't start worrying until around lunchtime. Brooke was expected to come in for lunch. They usually ate together. Uh, And then she started noticing Brooke's keys, cell phone, purse were all inside the house. So she went outside to look around, look for Brooke, and noticed the cleaning supply bucket was there in the parking lot, and Brooke was nowhere to be found. So she definitely started to worry. Her husband, Zach, actually called the police at 3 p.m. that day to report uh, his sister-in-law, really, but he he did note that it was a worker from the apartments to the police. Unlike other cases you'll hear about, the police acted very quickly. Disappearing was entirely out of character for 19-year-old Brooke. She always had her phone, checked in regularly with her family. And the police were very concerned because when they got on scene, they noticed alongside the bucket and cleaning supplies were Brooke's flip-flops. Like her actual shoes she had been wearing. Yeah, the ones she left the house wearing were just beside the bucket, and one of them was actually broken. So the strap that goes over your toe was broken away from the yeah, bottom of the shoe. Yeah, looking at the picture and it's like, yeah, they look like, you know, your cheap summer flip-flops and that whole band is just it's yeah, it's up. broken. So this indicated to police there was a struggle and that Brooke had possibly been taken unwillingly. Other alarming incidents happened the same day Brooke disappeared. Two different women on the OSU campus reported a strange man and they both noted that he drove a green van. The first co-ed, Randy Hanroot, was approached by an odd man in the Reeser Stadium parking lot. This is just slightly off campus, but it's still within the vicinity of where you would see students all morning. Um, But she said that he was kind of aggressive talking to her, and the exchange must have looked suspicious because a nearby school athletic director started walking over to see what was going on. And as he did... Yeah, I know, right? He's kind of a hero. Right. As he walked over which many people probably wouldn't have done, this guy in the van took off. So Bob Clifford, the athletic director, reported to police later that evening when everyone started talking about Brooke Wilberger that he saw a green van with Minnesota license plates 
in the parking lot of Reeser Stadium that morning. A second co-ed, Crystal Thornton, was approached by a man in a green van while walking on campus not far from Reeser Stadium. And mind you, this is just a few minutes between each other. He got out of the van to ask her directions, and it spooked her because he opened the door and kind of leaned towards her. So I think she started to get worried, and she left the scene right away. And once she heard about Brooke Wilberger's disappearance, she called the police to report what happened to her. So neither of these girls reported... When it happened, it wasn't until they heard about Brooke that they realized that it was more of a more of a deal than yeah, they like possibly it could have been the same person. Who knows? Okay, but I mean the Brooke news got out so quickly, which we'll talk about in a minute. That mm-hmm. I think they did report pretty quickly. Okay, so there was one more potential witness in the area who phoned police. He went by the name of Brian, no last name, and he claimed he saw a green minivan driving erratically. Uh, just near campus. They didn't note where exactly it was seen. Unfortunately, the call was disconnected, so no additional information was ever received from him. Interesting. The good thing about this, though, these three incidents provided enough small bits of information that would really help later on in the case. The entire city of Corvallis acted very quickly. The local LDS church organized a search party that saw hundreds of people gather within hours, and they started canvassing the entire town. The search overall lasted 11 straight days, and they covered 4,000 acres of woodlands in the Corvallis and surrounding areas. They even were in canoes and kayaks on the water, checking all the marsh areas. And I even remember thinking... Should I take off work and go join this? I, I feel like the in, entire town was part of this search effort. Thousands of flyers went out all over Oregon. It wasn't long before there were vigils held in cities, press conferences, TV spots. There were billboards that went up all over uh, along the highway. There was even a giant banner that went across Harrison Boulevard in Corvallis. It was a main road that goes to downtown, and it had... Uh, findbrook.com and it was up for months i remember driving under it nearly every single day that website in just 24 hours saw over 25,000 visits which was pretty impressive so they were gathering tips and getting brooke's story out as fast as possible it wasn't long before police started locating suspects in just a few days a suspect comes into view his name is sung koo kim He's a 30-year-old, mild-mannered man who lives in Tigard, Oregon with his parents. Sound familiar, Alicia? Like, did I date him? No. (laughs) Is that what you're asking? Ten days prior to Brooke's abduction, Kim found himself arrested on suspicion of stalking. His target is a blonde OSU swimmer, and some have even noted that she resembled Brooke. When arrested, police found a copy of the woman's photo and bio from the swim team, along with dryer lint procured from the laundry of none other than the Oak Park apartment complex where Brooke worked and where this OSU swimmer lived. That is, how did they narrow it down to being from those apartments? Well, he was a meticulous note keeper. Oh my God. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, I'm I'm excited. (laughs) So police focused back on Kim as a suspect after this. So he was arrested. He probably made some sort of bail. Then they focused back in on him after Brooke disappears. Okay. So Dryerlin wasn't all they found. 
Oh boy. When they looked into his residence. Why, and why is this dryer lint like so disturbing to me more than like <laughs> literally like, and he was found with a body in his car. I'd be like, oh, that's Because terrible. I just this think is like it's weird. Intimate garbage. It is. It's the little pieces of things that come off our clothing and he's been gathering them. Yeah. Also, intimate garbage is my new band name. Check us out. I'm starting to think Sung Koo Kim isn't really all that mild-mannered. It's always the one you least expect. Well, what we find out when police went back to his residence to you know, do some digging, he had a proclivity for women's panties. Of course he did. He didn't just steal a laundry load at a laundromat. He had thousands of pieces of laundry what? from colleges in four counties. So he just does a Little laundry tour. panty snatcher. Yeah, he's a panty snatcher. One of the locations where he procured those undergarments, as I mentioned, was Oak Park Apartments, where Brooke Wilberger was last seen. Police worked quickly to uncover the trove of panties, and they also found some other disturbing materials from his residence. Oh, goody. He was not the suspect some felt would take this feisty former gymnast. Because Kim was described as very passive, uh, too passive to commit this crime. And also, you know, it's like if you're sneaking and you're like taking dryer lint and underwear, yeah, that more does like seem like a creepy big, weirdo. Yeah, it's that voyeurism as opposed yeah. to like however, hands on. Not however, saying he couldn't, but that would be quite the leap. However, some of his former college classmates told police that he told them once he could kill whenever he wanted because he was one of Christ's angels. So he may not have been, you know, too passive. He definitely was talking about it. May 29th, 2004, police executed a search warrant at the Tigard home he shared with his parents. Investigators found more than 3,400 pairs of panties and bras, many labeled with names, dates, and places. So this is where it comes into play how they knew. He said, this is this OSU swimmer. This is where she lived. He also had some other things. Uh, He was a collector. Mm. He had a collection of used tampons and pubic hair. Oh, boy. Did he also have those marked? It didn't really say, but possibly. I would assume so. But my question is, how does one procure pubic hair? Was he getting it in the dryer lint and just painstakingly collecting one piece I mean, I've time. never gone through my own dryer lint, but I feel like it's not really I mean, puby. where would he get the pubes? Was he getting dirty underwear and just like looking that, for miscellaneous pubes? That might pubes? be like getting underwear or like going into... I mean, if you're going in the bathroom to get the tampons, then you're probably like checking the toilet, checking the toilet yeah, seat. Yeah, so I mean, he, he is clearly meticulous. And obviously like extremely mentally ill. So yeah, and not just his collections. There were other things. So they found assault rifles, Three computers, and across those computers, 40,000 pornographic images. Jeez. These were showing women being tortured, mutilated, raped. There were also images of sex acts involving children. To the surprise of no people. Right. But definitely majority was torture porn. Mm. Police also found a very disturbing document. This was a one-page document, and they he just had titled it OSU.doc. The document itself describes a rape and murder of a woman, and it lists every item you would need to torture, including a hood, mirrored sunglasses, six pairs of nylons, and a bra and panty set for the victim. How thoughtful. 
So they've proven that he's done nothing but been creepy and stuck. Although I do remember rumors when I, I was on campus during this time, obviously. And I remember rumors of women saying they woke up to people being in their room. And so a lot of people thought, oh, it was him, that he was actually breaking and entering. It wasn't just laundry mats, but that wasn't ever proven. So while Kim is clearly a pervert and had some disturbing fetishes, he did not abduct Brooke. And were they able, and I don't know if you know this, of like pushing any kind of pressing any kind of charges because he had marked everything and they could say breaking and entering? Or yeah, anything? yeah, he definitely was. So okay. he was ruled out as a, sub, a suspect for Brooke's case. Uh, he passed a polygraph and Kim's family was home with him the morning of the 24th. Mm. And he was actually trading stock on his sister's computer. So they have they have documentation of that. He has a solid alibi. He ended up being charged with 15 counts of burglary and theft. Oh, good. Uh, one count, second degree, encouraging child sex abuse from his computer files. Fantastic. And he was sent to prison in 2006 and served his sentence until he was released November 26th, 2012. Though he's free, he still has to register as a sex offender forever. He can't be around minors uh, or places they would gather. And probably the hardest for all of us would be he can't use a computer or the internet. And there was no notation on whether that will end. I don't know if that's probationary or not. That's almost literally impossible at this point. Yeah. And I mean, he was a, a smart guy. He has two degrees and... That must be really hard. So, I mean, he's clearly not mentally stable. He, you know, made pleas in prison that he needed help. His family mm-hmm. just wanted him out so they could medicate him. Because right. as we know, prison systems here do not do that. Right. Um, so he's hopefully getting the care he needs. On November 29th, 2004, a 22-year-old Russian foreign exchange student in New Mexico was accosted, threatened with a knife at her neck, and ordered into the back of a red two-door Honda with tinted windows. After driving away from the abduction scene, the driver pulls over, makes her undress, and sexually assaults her. He then drove to a nearby apartment complex where he tied her ankles together with a shoelace, her own shoelace. He tied her wrists together with her scarf and stuffed her panties in her mouth. He left her in the car while he apparently went inside this apartment complex to buy drugs. She was able to free herself and escape the car. So she's running down the road almost completely naked when Dana Finks, a waitress driving her three daughters to her grandmother's house in Albuquerque, stops to help this woman. She's frantic, trying to get into the car. So they let her into the car. Meanwhile, they see the red two-door leave the apartment complex. And then they call the police to tell them what happened. Suddenly from behind, somebody grabbed me and helped me to get into the car. But then I felt the knife on my neck. I started burning it with a lighter, trying to blow it into my lungs. But I didn't want to inhale. And he was mad. He said that I should do what he wants me to do. So as police are on the scene, they're talking to neighbors and one of the neighbors claims to know the driver. She said his name was Joe and could tell them where he hangs out. Police quickly locate the car and the owner. So they ask him, are you Joe and is this your car? And he says, well, no, my name is Joel, Joel Patrick Courtney. (laughs) But yeah, this is my car. 
So with the details provided by the victim, they just went ahead and arrested him. So this is Joel Patrick Courtney, a married father of three. He was then arrested, charged with first degree criminal sexual penetration, kidnapping and aggravated battery. Joel Patrick Courtney was born June 2nd, 1966 in Beaverton, Oregon. Even at an early age, Courtney started flirting with the dangers that life can offer. One of his sisters claims that despite having a very good family, he started using drugs at the age of 11, and by 15, he was already sent to a juvenile detention center. Both his sister and his cousin detailed situations where Joel had sexually assaulted them or tried to. His sister said one time she woke up to his arms or his hands around her throat and he was on top of her, partially dressed. And in order to get him to stop, she grabbed her alarm clock and bashed his head uh, until he let her go. So I'm feeling like this guy might be more of a suspect because that doesn't sound as mild mannered as yeah he's definitely stealing panties this physically like abusive seems like he gets sexually aroused by that right um their cousin also claimed that he accosted her on four separate occasions usually during sleep she was awoken to it he was always naked and um either fondling her or trying to do something and it doesn't sound like it got further than um you know, touching that. and inappropriate behavior. I hope there was no rape, but it and there wasn't. was no like family interference. Like no one, not that I could find. Tried there, to put a stop. To yeah, this. I mean, I mean, he. This could be part of the reason he went to juvenile detention. Right. I couldn't find That's that information, true. but he's definitely had a long history of this. So at the age of nineteen, Courtney was actually convicted for sex abuse. So this was a female friend. They were hanging out together. They had been drinking. He was smoking pot and snorting cocaine. I know. Casual. Great casual night. And while she was driving him home, he attempted to kiss her, which she did not want. Totally unwanted. No consent. And when she tried to get him to stop, he punched her in the face and pulled her out of the car, throwing her onto the gravel. It's noted that he was pulling off her jeans and panties and obviously trying to sexually cost her rape was her. taking place but she just stopped fighting and noted that he lost interest when she wasn't fighting him off whoa so she immediately went to police after she got home and he pled guilty to first degree sex abuse but was only sentenced to three months that's great i love that she <laughs> was brave enough to not only survive that attack from her friend but to report it yeah and he served a a, a whopping really powerful lesson being learned. Yeah. Three months. He did have a probationary period. I didn't even catch how long that was because I was Who so cares? pissed off by three months. Right. After an attempted rape. Um, Courtney eventually married in the early 90s to a woman named Rosie. They lived in New Mexico for a short time. But in 2004, they moved to Oregon to live with her family. There's been talk that their entire marriage was super volatile and that she actually left him a few times and he followed her out to Oregon. Uh, and that's why they ended up living with her family. And only after a couple of months in Oregon, she left him and moved back to New Mexico. Good so he's definitely ping ponging between New Mexico and Oregon. At this and I point. would imagine it doesn't, you know, if he's going to do that to his own family members and a close friend, I doubt that those behaviors ceased with a wife. Oh, no. So. His son, I think, was around 12. He actually called the police on him at one point Oy. to say he was abusing his mother. So at, at one, I think she even got a restraining order against him at that time. 
But he uh, continues his rampage of debauchery by getting a drunk driving violation in Oregon in 2004. So due to the drunk driving charge, he was expected to be in court in Newport, Oregon. So that's about an hour uh, west of Corvallis. It's the beach. It's the well, beach. Well, the coast. We don't have beaches. And there's a little bit of beach there. We have coast. Anyway, he was supposed to be in court on May 24th, 2004. This is the same day Brooke Wilberger disappeared. So around 1.15, he actually called the court to leave a message to say, hey, I'm in Corvallis. I'm on my way. But he never arrived. And he placed himself in Corvallis. Yeah, he's another smart person. Yeah, that's really good. That's smart. An Albuquerque detective named Jinx Jones, a.k.a. my new karaoke name. That's the best name I've ever heard in yeah, my life. Yeah, I found it finally, new karaoke name. He saw the lengthy rap sheet of Joel Courtney, particularly the sexual assaults, and he was curious, okay, are there any unsolved crimes that fit this guy's M.O. that I can look into? Because, you know, they're getting, they're going to put him on trial for this abduction of the Russian exchange student. He wants to see what else they can get him on. So he noticed on his record there was a DUI in Oregon. So he reached out to the local police to find out more about that. And what he finds out is there is a abduction. And this is Brooke Wilberger. So now we're finally getting somewhere. While Brooke Wilberger's task force is still in full force, they were not onto Courtney at all until old Jinxie hit him up. So this was in early December 2004. So it's been a few months. Uh, But finally, they have someone new to focus on. Now that they're focused on Joel Patrick Courtney, they're looking to try to find, you know, how they can put these two together. And it wasn't long before they started picking up on the green van. So just months before Brooke Wilberger's disappearance, Courtney was working as a supervisor for a company called Creative Building Maintenance. One of the perks of the job is that he drove a company vehicle. And this was a 1997 Green Dodge Caravan. Oh, snap. And you guessed it. Minnesota Minnesota plates. This is when police make a move. Now that the van perfectly fits witness accounts of attempted abductions the same day Wilberger went missing, they have a clue that they can work together additional evidence. Though Courtney actually drove the van from Oregon to New Mexico, Creative Building Maintenance reclaimed the van and brought it back home. It wasn't long until Benton County, the county Corvallis is located in, purchased the van from the company so that they could do what they wanted with it. At what point did he, I'm sorry if you've already explained this, did he drive from Oregon to So New we're Mexico? thinking this is after the abduction. Okay. He doesn't go to court. I'm he thinking dips. he picks up the van, drives back to New Mexico because that's his MO, right? He right. goes and back and forth to get out of trouble. Yeah. So I think they reclaimed it shortly thereafter. Okay. And they were able to track his movements to say Yeah. It's and then the police here. purchased it from okay. that company. Emily, what is that? You mean this book? 
What do you do with it? I turn the pages, I complete the page, I finish the book, and now I have this wonderful story in my head that I can tell all my friends about. That sounds amazing. Where did you get this book? I got this book at Literary Leftovers. Today's Murder in the Rain episode is brought to you by Literary Leftovers, a local brick-and-mortar used bookstore in Battleground, Washington. Literary Leftovers has been open since 2001, and besides selling used books, they give trade credit for good quality used books. They love supporting local authors and local artists' work. Literary Leftovers. If you like book, come take a look. From the cradle to the grave, everybody loves a donut. Voodoo Donut is home of the weirdest and most decadent fried pastries this side of the astral plane. Come visit one of their family funhouse locations and see what their donateers have summoned from the kettle to delight your senses. Creators of the Bacon Maple Bar, Portland Cream, Memphis Mafia, and many vegan options, Voodoo has taken the world by storm. Cat Daddy and Trace built their little donut shop that could into a dynamic fun zone in front of and behind the counter, with locations in Oregon, Colorado, Texas, California, and Florida. Visit VoodooDonuts.com for locations and check them out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to document your own unique trip into Donut Valhalla if you're able to resist scarfing your loot first. Hashtag Voodoo Donuts. So it has been months, keep that in mind, it's been months and months since she went missing, but now police have that van and they work to try to get information out of it. So they actually dismantled the van completely, removed the carpet and the seats, and they sent parts of it to the FBI lab in Quantico. So that's where they could look for fingerprints, fluids, DNA, hairs, what have you, treasure trove. While the FBI lab is looking into the van parts, they also traveled to New Mexico in February 2005. Courtney's currently being held there on his charges in the other case, but FBI desperately needs his DNA because if they find anything in the van, they need to be able to compare it to Have something. Have the match, yeah. Right, so they go to Courtney to get his DNA, and he abides, and he just reaches right into his pants and pulls out some pubes and hands them over. No, I'm not, not true. even joking. So much pubes. So many pubic hairs. Okay, now that they have his DNA, they can compare whatever they find in the van. Luckily, technicians found fluids that matched both Joel and Brooke. And these are what we call commingled. And that Mm. points to a sexual assault taking place. Now they can conclusively say those two were in the van together. The lead detective, Sean Houck, is quoted as saying the findings were divine because he acquired the results one year to the day of Brooke's disappearance and nearly within the same hour. By this time, everyone was fairly certain that Brooke had been murdered, but since police hadn't yet discovered her body, this evidence was what police needed to pursue identifying Courtney as the culprit. Joel Patrick Courtney can now be arrested for kidnapping, rape, and murder. So now we have a guy who's arrested for abduction, sexual assault of two different women in two different states. What happens next? Well, in New Mexico, they get first dibs. He was arrested there first. They have a witness. Everything's moving a lot faster. He's in custody for some time there, but we know how long it takes to go to trial. So finally, in 2007, Courtney pleads guilty in New Mexico court for the kidnapping and sexual assault on the Russian exchange student. For these crimes, he's sentenced to 18 years in prison. So what about Oregon? 
while he was in custody in New Mexico, they did actually serve the arrest warrant on him. So Oregon also gets dibs. And in April 2008, Courtney was extradited to Oregon where he faced charges for the murder of Brooke Wilberger. About a year later, in the spring of 2009, he goes to trial in Oregon for kidnapping, rape, and murder of Brooke Wilberger. During the trial, he talks a lot about history of drug abuse, sexual abuse, and a witness comes to the stand and basically says he was with him the night before Brooke's kidnapping and murder. And he claims they were doing crack together. So that kind of just alludes to what a mess this guy was. Was that supposed to be helpful for him? Like, look how messed up I am. No, I think actually it worked in favor of the prosecution. Just saying, look at the state this guy is in. He has a known history of drug abuse. And assault. In in the Russian exchange student case, he was high there too. So people are thinking he gets aggressive. Right. He's a drug user. And when he uses, So I don't think it was necessarily to help him. Okay. Um, but they definitely talked about it for a large portion of the trial. Also, can we go back to that and how wild it is that it took that many years when there were eyewitnesses? Eyewitnesses. To everything DNA. that happened. Yeah, it just goes to show you, it, A, it takes a long time to get to trial, but B, you have multiple states involved. And luckily, Oregon and and New Mexico work together in a lot of ways. There uh-huh. are states that kind of align on how they arrest people in, in multiple states. So that was good. Uh, But yeah, it took a long time. Luckily, he's in custody. Can't do anything more. Oregon prosecutors want Courtney for a death penalty sentence. So even with the loads of evidence against him, they absolutely want to find a body. But he is just not giving up information to them. The Wilberger family, after years of missing Brooke, just wants her home so they can put her to rest and move on with their lives. So they beg prosecutors and DA to strike a deal with him so that they can just locate her body. So the DA decides, yeah, we'll go forward with it. So in exchange for pleading guilty and helping them find Brooke, you know, they want to know what happened to her. They'll, they're telling him, you don't need to have the death penalty. We Take will keep you alive. You just need to tell us. Well, he declines. He doesn't want anything to do with it. So after, I think, a few weeks, he finally goes back to them and says, well, if you allow me to serve my sentence in New Mexico, I'll do it. He does not want to go back to Oregon. He wants to be near his kids because he's such a loving man. Right. Good father figure, definitely. Yeah. So the governor of New Mexico was not happy with this. He wanted him, his sentence done, get him out of here, kill the guy, do whatever. I don't want to keep him here for a life sentence. But the family, you know, made the plea to him. And if any of you watch video of Cammie Wilberger, she's very loving and just so generous and forgiving she just wants her daughter so she can be very convincing so they eventually allow him to serve out his sentence in new mexico so once everyone agrees on the plea courtney actually draws a map and tells police what happened that day it might be hard for you to understand but at this time we just really feel gratitude um, even to mr courtney that he could see fit to tell us where he left Brooke. We are thankful that justice was served and that he will not have the opportunity for parole. Courtney recounts that he abducted Brooke from the apartment complex and what he ended up doing was he drove through and saw her cleaning the light fixtures and he went up and blocked her in with his van and that obscured her from view of most of the apartments. 
So under the pretext of delivering a FedEx envelope, which he actually had with him, he gets out, forces her at knife point into the van and binds her with duct tape. He drives around for quite a bit and eventually takes her to a secluded area in the woods. Now, it's not clear if this is where we would later find her because there was a witness account that they saw them in Rickreel, which is a lot further away from where they end up finding Brooke. Uh, But that would explain uh, Brian's witness account of driving erratically through town. Um, It could be that he was just driving around with her in the back. But eventually he settles on this secluded area in the woods and he claims he brought McDonald's and a bottle of wine and was going to have dinner with her, which is... But he was also high on crack. Yeah, exactly. So she's actually there overnight in the woods, bound with duct tape. I don't know if he's there with her the whole time. That's actually never talked about. But the next morning, he claims is when he raped her. According to him, she was so enraged by the sexual assault that she started fighting him, this 105-pound, 5'4 girl, uh, which, you know, maybe she did. I, I hope she would fight for her life. But he ended up punching her and then beating her to death with a piece of wood nearby. And he just left her there. So the the map that he provided gave investigators an idea of where she was, but it actually took quite a few hours to find her. It wasn't exactly where he said, but it was... And plus it had been, at this point, how many years? A long... Like five years, years yeah, or five so. years, I believe. Yeah, it's going to be hard to find. This is a very wooded area. So this is a long Highway 20 between Corvallis and Newport. There are a couple of small towns. So in between... Blodgett and Wren, there's a private property, and that's actually where she was a little bit a ways off of the highway. And they, they did eventually recover her entire remains. So that's great. Yeah. September 21st, 2009, Joel Patrick Courtney was sentenced to life without parole for the murder of young Brooke Carol Wilberger. After serving some time in a supermax facility, he was later moved to Leah County Correctional in Hobbs, New Mexico, and that is where he is currently. So pubes, huh? I don't think, I wish they could have finagled something of like tricking him. Like, yeah, you can come to New Mexico, but also you never get a visitor ever again. Yeah. I mean, people are pretty angry. There's an interview with one of their I think it's a family friend in Vanita and she's you can tell real angry that he didn't get more time yes we're happy we got her body and I know her family even says they're thankful to him for giving that body can't get any more time I mean like he's doing life but having anything missing and not knowing that relief would be I mean I cannot even fathom so yeah you'd be willing to do pretty much anything to bring that closure and plus and going back to um where he said that you know the sexual assault didn't take place till the woods but then the dna was found in the yeah van, i think so it was like, more than once he i mean that's in the the investigator says take everything he says with a grain of salt we don't know if his story is not true. only is it he's a drug addict it's been five years he's done this who knows how many times yeah. do they have was there ever an inclination of hey, he also kind of matches up to anything else because that wouldn't be No, as far as I know, they have not found any other potential victims. He did have a type, though, so I would imagine the police looked 
for blonde small girls. The both the Russian exchange student and Brooke are very small and fair. Uh, his sister, I imagine, is also fair. If you look on the website, murderintherain.com, you can see some photos of the victim as well as uh, Joel Patrick. The police were concerned because when they became, when they came out... It's just a downward spiral. (laughs) Well, this was fun while it lasted. Cool, I quit. (laughs) (laughs) The co-eds both reported duplicate work. (laughs) Duplicate. Okay, sorry. I'm not going to screw up anymore. Kim's mother, Dong. (laughs) (laughs) Professional. He then drives to a nearby apartment complex and ties her to with her by <laughs> save that for later tonight. And besides selling used books, they give great head. F- <laughs> <laughs> Have been oh fucking fuck, I'm rusty. Okay. An old trombone. <laughs> Killer burger is so good. <laughs> I don't think I can do this. Yes, you can. Just be normal. All right. Hand built seven days a week at all our locations across the Portland metro area. So get over here. <laughs> That's written really weird. Get over here. They also have a delicious veggie patty for folks like my. That's oh. me. Do it. <laughs> They also have a delicious veggie patty for folks like Alicia that are lame. Murder in the Rain just celebrated our launch with a party. Fuck. I just had it really good in my head. Write it Mm. down. No. Are we bad at this? That's a fucking disaster for you. I'm sorry. Do you want me to take it from the top? Do it one more time, yeah. And talk slower in the intro. Okay. And do it better. (laughs) Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in.